Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for being here for our last, uh, I was at our last service. That was going to be a weird announcement right there. Uh, for our last Sunday of the current series, next week we dive into a series called The Last Week. We're going to talk about the last week of Jesus' life. We're going to take that all the way into our Good Friday service and then into Easter Sunday morning. Can you believe we're already talking Easter at this point? Uh, I'll tell you, pastors talk about Easter when Christmas is done, by the way. So that's just the way that we plan. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Uh, I'm so excited about what uh, God has in store. Uh, I have loved preaching this series. I've heard from a number of you about what uh, the Lord has really uh, done in your hearts. During this series, we've been preaching on the holiness of God this entire, uh, this past month. Um, tonight, uh, you do not want to miss our worship night tonight. Um, it's, I think it's going to be incredible. For about six years or so, I've been wanting to do a worship night, not in here, where we all get a little too spread out. I uh, wanted to do it actually in our cafe, which is the room right next door to here. So tonight, if you want to park uh, near the kids' area or park over here, that's fine. We'll have everything unlocked. Um, but what I had a heart to do years ago was I wanted to create what I would call a bit of an upper room experience. And on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, they gathered together in an upper room. I have been in that upper room. It's an amazing place. Uh, I'd love for you to go with me to Israel. I think we're going to go in November of 24. Um, but uh, we go to the upper room. And so actually, the cafe is about the size of the upper room. And so tonight, we're going to get together and we're going to worship. And we've never had a worship night in there um, I'll be honest, I'm nervous because this is just a little bit out of the norm. This is a comfortable place to spread out, but to be a little bit close quarters, I honestly think it's going to be a fantastic thing. Um, I, I'm excited because it's just so much unknown about it. So join us tonight. Uh, we would love for you to be there. Would you stand for the reading of the word this morning? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord. That word behold is going to be a very key word today. And we are being transformed. How many of you know that we, as we are following Jesus, we can't help but be transformed? Three of you are transformed awesome start to the morning here. But when we follow Jesus, there should be a trail of change. My prayer is the day that you put your trust in Jesus, I pray that there is a difference between your life now and then, unless you gave your heart to Jesus during worship time, there should be a trail of change. I pray that you don't talk the same, look the same, act the same, respond the same, pray the same, worship the same. I hope there's something different about you because of the transformation. And so, Lord, one more time, we just say, we need you today, we need you today. Ask that you would just impact us. We want transfiguration, transformation today, Lord, that we would behold your glory and that glory would find residence in our life, that our lives would be places that the world, the culture around us could behold the holiness, the glory of Jesus Christ. So we speak that in your name. Amen. Give somebody an awkward high five when you're seated. They are awkward, aren't they?
my first week of ministry ever, first, my first week ever, so May the 4th, 1997 was my first day of ministry. So my first week, I got sent on my very first hospital visit, and uh, the pastor said, take the intern with you. I said, okay, intern's first hospital visit, my first hospital visit, and I said, where am I going? He says, go to Pontiac St. Joe, and I drop my jaw. I'm being sent to Pontiac St. Joe Hospital. And so I'm walking in, I'm just looking, looking around, and my, my intern, known him for less than a week, and it's one of those things, I got a position, and they gave me an intern, never met the dude before, and so he's like, what does that look? I said, I was born here. I haven't been at this hospital since November 29th, 1975. I was born in this hospital. He goes, no kidding, does it look any different? Mike, it was kind of a traumatic day. I don't remember too much from that. What does that have to do with today's message? Nothing. I just thought of it this morning, and I've been laughing about it all morning long. Nothing to do with the message, but thought I'd make somebody laugh this morning. Um, there's a term that came out a few years back, and that term has kind of developed and metamorphosized a little bit. And the term is called ghost follower. What a ghost follower is, it's kind of a social media um, term that lends toward individuals that... You either have a social media app and you use it to watch people or to read their stuff and you don't use it to ever interact with people. You are a ghost follower. Or if you want to go even deeper, your spouse has the app and you go on there. I've got a good friend. He lives just down the street. He, his wife has Facebook and so he'll tell me all the time, oh man, what you posted the other day was funny. I'm like, how did you... How did you read it? Oh, I just look at Kim's phone, and I said, oh, you don't know it's Dale, so I don't want to use names here. I just use Dale and Kim. Everybody knows now. So, sorry, Dale, Ashmore. I'll say his name full. <laughs> Live over on Peachtree. I just, let me give you his address and his number at this point. Oh, I, I love what you posted. That inspired me. I'm like, why don't you get your own Facebook and follow me? Did you at least like it on behalf of your wife? No, 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 that's, that's her app. I'm like, so you're just a ghost follower. And the term came out of a, an interview with, uh, at the point, the Carolina Panthers quarterback, Cam Newton, where a reporter said, hey, something you posted on an Instagram the other day, he asked him a question, and he goes, well, did you like my post? He goes, well, no, I was looking on a reporter's phone. They had the app. He goes, oh, you're a ghost follower. That's great. Just awkward silence. Ghost follower where I want to be close enough, so to speak, to see what you're doing, but not enough to commit to being connected to you. Now, nowadays, we get the term ghosting. Ghosting is simply if, if somebody is texting you and you're not texting back, or they're sending you messages, you're not messaging back, you're ghosting them. So I'm going to give you all sorts of terms this morning. But I think that oftentimes in the body of Christ is we've got we can have churches that are, follow, that are full of ghost followers that we want to be somehow connected to Jesus. We want to see what he is up to. But when it comes to living outside of the four walls of the church, we haven't downloaded the app. We don't have the interactions. We don't have the connections. And this morning, as we are wrapping up the series on the holiness of God, my view and my heart is this, is that because of this series and with what God has done in our life, that we would be more than people that are just casual onlookers to see what Jesus is doing. I want to have a church that are not just fans of Jesus, but we are followers of Jesus. 
Fans of Jesus are ghost followers. I want to see what he's up to. I want to see what he's doing. I want to see what, where he might be leading, and maybe, possibly, one day I might commit. But I want to get a group that are going to be followers after Christ, that will do more than just simply look at what he's doing. They're going to say, where Jesus goes, that's where I want to go. And the way that we truly do that is to get a view of God's holiness. Because when you understand God's holiness, it does something deep within your life. I wrote it this way. To possess a subpar perception of God's holiness results in a subpar presence of holiness seen in our lives. If we have a subpar understanding of God, we're going to have a subpar reflection of who he is. And my goal through this series is that we would see from Isaiah 6, where we started, to where we're at now, that we would see God high and lifted up. We would see his authority, his power, his greatness, and his might. And then we'd be so captivated by who he is that we want him deep inside of our lives. And that would, so, that would affect us so profoundly that everywhere we go, that our lives would exude the glory and the holiness of God. Not to lift up our name, but that there would be such a reflection of him in us that people would see our lives and actually taste and see and know how good what God really is. And that's where we get 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It says, with unveiled face beholding the glory of God, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. He's talking about growth. Transforming from one degree to another. He's talking about the growth. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now, what is really cool about this portion of Scripture is the Apostle Paul who wrote this to the church in Corinth. Paul is actually making two different references here. He is referencing Moses, and he's actually referencing Jesus. Now, the one reference, the listeners would have understood because he, used the, he talked about the unveiled glory with unveiled faces. He was referring to Exodus chapter 34. Moses went up to the mountain to meet with God face to face. And when he came down from the mountain, he literally freaked out all of Israel because his skin was illuminating with the glory of God. He saw the holy God and God's holiness rested on him. And he was causing a lot of concern like that's Moses, that's not normal. And so he put a veil over his head just to help people kind of process what just took place. He kept it there, kind of protecting the people from going into fear because he comes down and all of a sudden, like, what is this? And then Paul also actually makes a second reference that's not so obvious. The second reference is actually out of Matthew chapter 17, and it's the transfiguration of Jesus. And the reason why that's a reference, because the same Greek word that he uses for the word transformation is the same word that we get the word transfiguration, which took place in Matthew chapter 17. Jesus went up on a mountain. Man, what is it with the Bible and mountains, by the way? We could talk about, man, Jesus was a rock climber. Hallelujah. I knew it. Jesus goes up on a mountain with a few disciples, and all of a sudden, the glory of God rests upon the top of that mountain, and Jesus, before their eyes, is transfigured. All of a sudden, he is, his clothes are as white as snow. All of a sudden, there's this, what we might call the Shekinah glory of God. The, this cloud surrounds them. We see Moses and Elijah appear, and they're interacting with Jesus. And God speaks and says, this is my son. Who am I well pleased? Listen to him. And so in one scripture, Paul is referencing this idea of glory. That glory kind of sat upon Moses because he met with God and then we get this glory that was not the reflected glory like with Moses this was the inherent glory of Jesus being revealed and then he talks he's talking to us now about glory he said now you've got glory in you 
And this is what's beautiful, is we got a different glory than Moses. Moses, it came from the outside shining upon him. From Jesus, the glory was who he was. But what we have nowadays is the same spirit that raised Jesus from the grave is in you. If you're a believer in Jesus, you have got an inner glory inside of your life, and we call him the Holy Spirit. In that inner glory, that Holy Spirit is the agent of our transformation. He's the one that helps us change. Growing up, did you ever have a talk with your parents and they can tell who you've been hanging out with by the things that you were doing? Y'all remember those days? I went through my do-rag phase. Wherever I went, I had my do-rag on, and for some reason, I liked having it hang down really low. Like, remember in the 80s, the tails that we would wear, the rat tails? My dad wouldn't allow it because my, my, the way my like, mullet kind of bunched up in the back. Yes, I had a mullet, and they're still cool, by the way. But I, someone's like, okay. But I went through my do-rag phase, and after a while, my mom's like, how long have you been hanging out with Jay? I'm like, what are you talking about? She goes, even the way you just said that. She goes, Jay wears a do-rag. Do you have to wear a do-rag? And then the famous one, if he jumped off a bridge, would you? I've said, if, well, if he lived, of course I'm going to jump off the bridge. It was cool. The idea of the scripture is this, is that that glory that gets put inside of us, the glory was meant to change Moses and inherently change Israel. Jesus' glory revealed was to help us to see that the glory that is revealed by him is the glory that now sits inside of us as the Spirit of God there to help change us. God wants to do more than just save you. He wants to deliver you. He wants to grow in you. He wants to use you. He wants the holiness that you have seen to be present in our lives. Why? Because he's called his people to be holy as he is holy. That word holy we describe this whole series as a word that means distinct and separate. We weren't meant to, meant to blend into the culture around us. We weren't meant to blend in with everybody else around us. There should be something distinct about us. We have an inner glory, and an ang- the agent of that glory is the Spirit of God. So this morning I want to talk about holiness, and I'm going to give you just a quick three steps, three steps that I'm wanting to take, and I want you to see a progression of how we step into holiness. Number one, if you're taking notes, if you're taking notes, just write this down. We behold him. Where does holiness start as we behold him? I'm going to make it easy this morning. I'm going to give you three B letters. The first, letter, first B letter is, a B word is behold. We behold him. There is something that's very peculiar about the idea of beholding things in Scripture. Because the eyes, whenever the eyes are brought up in Scripture or looking, or gazing upon, that idea is actually, normally it's a, it's a Hebrew metaphor. Sometimes it's even referred to as an idiom. And the, the looking or gazing is the idea of placing faith. So when you behold something, you're there to place faith. Last week when I was wrapping up the worship time, I talked about when we see things happening, uh, wars and rumors of wars and pestilence and things and brokenness and shattered things all around us, that Jesus says, lift up your eyes. What he's trying to say is, what you're gazing at, don't place your faith in that. Lift your eyes up above it to me. Because when we behold God, we become changed. 
There's something about us beholding him and seeing him for who he really is. And that, again, is what this whole series has been about. It's that we, we, we behold the holiness of God in a way that we have never seen God before. That we would, in the middle of worship, that we would find ourselves doing more than just singing songs that are on the screens, but something would so capture our heart. And that we would behold God in a different way. We would find ourselves on our knees or our hands lifted. We would speak, begin to sing out that which is in our hearts because what we are beholding is beginning to get deep down in our spirits. That's one thing I love about the scriptures is because there's, I don't know any other place where we can get who Jesus is and the ability to behold him any better than seeing it in the scriptures. We are a church that are about the scriptures. We will always preach the scriptures. We will always have this as, a, as fundamental and foundational to our lives. And I love looking at the scriptures because we can behold Christ for who he is. And some of you are thinking, well, but yeah, yes, in the gospels. But I'm here to say you can behold Christ in any book of the Bible. From cover to cover, you can behold Christ. All 66 books. I promise you, if you gave me all the time in the world to preach, and some of you, you've said that to me. Pastor, I don't care if you preach two hours. I'm like, you're my favorite now, but everybody else does care. Because people's butts and their brains have the same type of capacity that's going on. But when you sit and you really identify all 66 books, you, be, books, you begin, begin to realize that Jesus is seen. I mean, we could start at the beginning and see that he's the covering of Adam and Eve. Jesus is the ark carrying Noah and his family. He's the sacrificial system. He's the scapegoat, the blood on the Hebrew doorpost. He's the tabernacle, the holy place. He's the rejected brother who's wearing his father's robe. He's the one with a slingshot in the hand, the savior of the timid people. He's the morning manna in the evening light. He is the Isaac, he's Isaac and the ram, Jacob's ladder, David's king, the serpent lifted up high in the wilderness he's brought low he's he's brought low to us God to a man to God God to man I should say he's the law he's a law source and fulfillment he's the psalmist delight he's the epistles explanation we can keep going on and on and on that Jesus is image Jesus is shown Jesus is described throughout the scriptures when we see David standing on behalf of Israel it was God who is in Christ standing on behalf of us that when we see Moses standing between the living and the dead we see that Jesus stands between us and sin Jesus is seen all over the place, and when we behold him, it transforms us. But one thing that's very peculiar about the scripture is this, because there is a danger when it comes to scripture that we would just simply know about it, but it, we don't allow it to transform us. There are a lot of people that know a lot about the scriptures, but have never allowed Jesus to transform them. It's not enough just to know the scriptures. Let me, let's just say this. The devil knows the scriptures. What did the devil tempt Jesus in the wilderness with? He used scripture. Demons know scripture. Like, are you saying that we are demons? Well, not all of you. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Except for that Ohio State fan I know here. I love you, Kevin. I love you, Kevin. I do. But what makes, what distinguishes us, what distinguishes us from the devil? The fact that we have beheld his glory and then we actually take the next step, we begin to believe. We can behold what is said, but if we stop there, it does nothing for the condition of our life. We've got to take that next step, which is our second step today. We've got to do more than just behold him. We need to believe him because when we believe him, that's where the transformation begins to take place. 
Well, a lot of people know a lot. There are atheists that I know that know a ton about Scripture. What is the difference between us and, and them? It's when we get to the place where we're no longer just beholding it, but what we behold now gets within our spirit, and we believe. We have placed our faith, and not faith, and now we are transformed. In the Gospels, we see Jesus dealt with this very tough group that was really keeping a very heavy a heaviness upon the people of Israel. We call them Pharisees. In uh, modern, day, modern language, they would have been the religious leaders. I'll say it this way. They were the pastors. And with these Pharisees, Jesus calls them out in Matthew 26, 23, verse 27. He says, What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Uh, that's, honestly, that's quite a sobering thing to hear from Jesus. Let me just say this. Of all the people that Jesus is pretty hard on, let me just say this. When Jesus talked about hell and Jesus talked about just kind of really straightforward preaching, Jesus dealt more with the religious than he did with what we might consider the sinners. He was heavy-handed. Why? Because they beheld the scriptures, but they didn't believe what the scripture said. And they thought their beholding would translate into life. He says this in John 5. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus is kind of taking them to the woodshed. And he's like, if you knew the scriptures, like you say you knew the scriptures and actually believed in what they said, you would understand why I'm here and what I'm doing. And if you did, you would have life. I want you to do more than just come here and encounter the scriptures. I want you to come and to behold and to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the Lord. He is Savior. He is Master. He is Creator. He is the one from whom we have life. He is the way, the truth, and he is the one that we follow. Jesus is who he says he is. One of my favorite portions of scripture is John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is known famously as the feeding of the 5,000. And even that, if you're new to the church, in that age, in that ancient time, only the men were counted, not the women, not, not the, the children. Only the men were counted. And so commentators will say that it was the feeding of 5,000 men, but if you added the men, uh, women, and children all together, it was approximately 10 to 12,000 people. So Jesus, through a few loaves and a few fish, he multiplies and he feeds thousands of people, even has leftovers at the end. And within the landscape of him feeding everybody, Jesus says these words, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Jesus, in this landscape of feeding them actual bread, tells them, I need you to believe in me because I'm here. I am the bread of life. Why such a beautiful metaphor? A metaphor is something that is consumed because bread is wonderful. Bread is great to smell. I should put bread odor in the air right now. It would probably make the shortest service imaginable. But bread, I mean, it's, it's wonderful to smell. It's wonderful to look at. But bread is not meant to be looked at. Bread is not meant to be admired. Bread is ready to be consumed and needs to be consumed. Is anybody like carbs in the house today? Thank you, Jesus, for carbs. Goodness gracious. 
Jesus wasn't intended just to be seen and heard. He was meant to be believed. And it's only when he is believed is when he's actually experienced. Jesus says in John 6, 35, he says, whoever comes to me, you know, a better way to translate that out of the Greek is whoever believes in me will never hunger and thirst because they have come to me and I have filled him. So the question is, how does believing in Jesus being bread make us holy? Because it's what we consume that fills us and separates us. Again, the bread metaphor is beautiful. Man, anybody else hungry for bread right now? Oh, good sourdough, put in the toaster with some fresh jam. Sorry, some of you are hating me right now. Bread is such a beautiful metaphor that Jesus utilizes because it's heavy, it's dense, it's gluttonous. If somebody is starving, you can give him a few things and it might taper off the starvation, but if you gave somebody who is really hungry, you gave them bread, immediately their bellies are full. Why? Because you chew it up when it gets in your belly and it expands, and it really helps you to feel full. Why is it that when some of you go over to Olive Garden, you take home half of your dinner? Why do you take home half of your dinner? Because you filled up on bread. Aren't those heavenly? And don't you like, have to guard your heart because they never bring enough for you? But you fill up on bread. And what happens is this, is when you fill up on bread, it satisfies your stomach to the point that you're not ready to eat anything else. This is why the metaphor that Jesus uses works. Because the idea is, if you come to me, if you believe in me, if you experience me, I will give you satisfaction and fullness in your life that you won't have the temptation to go find fullness because you will find your fullness in me. Find your fullness in me, Jesus says. We behold him and we believe. We take in the bread because some of us, we are so busy searching after other things and we wonder why we're always spiritually famished. We're always spiritually dry. Why we're always spiritually thirsty. Jesus says, you believe in me. I'm going to fill you. But for some reason, we don't keep ourselves full unless we show up on a Sunday. Then Pastor Dave, he, he feeds us. Oh boy, there's an irritating remark. Pastor, you're the one that feeds me. And you have one meal a week. God bless you. I don't know how you do your six days of fasting. <laughs> do you know why you're not supposed to go to the grocery store when you're hungry? How many of you have gone to the grocery store hungry? Three days later, you're wondering, why did I spend so much money on stuff that I actually don't really want? And I think one of the struggles that we have in the modern church is we walk through the, our world, we walk through our workplace, we walk through our schools, and we walk through, and we step away from Jesus, and we walk around hungry, thinking we need this, we need this, I want this, I want this. And that's where temptation comes in. But when we begin to feast on the Lord, when we, we, when we believe in the Lord, that believing is what we feed on, and it begins to get down in our spirits, it gets down in our hearts. You want a recommendation on how to get out of temptation? Feast on the Lord. Believe in the Lord. Continue to trust in the Lord. And let that fillness begin to help, so, to help deal with that weariness that's on the inside of you that keeps one of chasing after other things. When we behold him, we believe in him. And when we believe in him, we are filled by him. We're filled by him. Asaph knew this in Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven beside you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. 
My heart and flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion. He's the one that I feed upon. There's nothing on earth I desire besides. I am so full of you that I don't have to be filled by somebody else. I'm so full of Jesus that I don't have to be filled by that addiction anymore. I'm so full that I don't have to be filled by relationships any longer. I'm so filled. It doesn't mean that we don't have things around us, but we no longer have to depend upon other people, other people and things to fill us. Why? Because our fullness comes from Jesus. Because in Christ, we found everything that we need. You see, being satisfied in God makes us totally independent of our environment since we no longer are needy people in search of circumstances to make us whole. When we find our fullness in God, we no longer depend upon our spouse to make us full because Jesus has made us full. We no longer depend upon relationships or likes on social media or whatever it is to give us meaning. It's Jesus that makes us full. There was nothing in this world that was ever meant to complete our lives. I love what David Wells says. The world that is a system of values whose source is human sinfulness and whose expression is cultural, it is a collective life which validates our personal sin. It is everything I decided that makes sinful attitudes and practices look normal. In other words, it is the world around us. It validates the ways that we want to live without Jesus. It wants to validate it to say, hey, you don't need Jesus. We will keep you full. But I don't know about you. Is I've tasted of what the world has offered, and I have never felt satisfied once. In my house, we've, I, I'm a soda water fanatic, by the way. In our house, we've got something called a, a soda stream where I can make my own soda water because I drink so much. And my wife, she started drinking it. At one point, she says, do you realize that when you finish drinking it, you go for another bottle because you're still thirsty? She goes, I think it's making you more thirsty. And if you study it, you'd realize that's all it does is it make you, makes you more thirsty. You think you're being full, but you're left being really thirsty. I'm here to say this. Not once have I walked away from Jesus and stayed hungry. Not once have I walked away from Jesus and left in a place where I have been wanting. It's the sinful attitudes of this world that feeds this idea. You keep coming back, keep coming back, and it makes us a slave to what they are. And we have to be cautious that we are not being shepherded by the algorithm of culture, but by the algorithm of the holiness of God. In other words, we don't take cues from a dying world on how do we live. We've made sin normal, and we've made holiness alien. And it's time for the church of God to begin a transition from, from beholding God and believing God to taking that third statement into becoming like him. We want to become like him. Look at the progression that's there. We behold Jesus, which means we see him for who he is. We believe in him, which means that we begin to cling to what we behold and the third step is we become like him. In other words, we begin to manifest what we believe. You don't have to manifest the sin that he saved you out of. You don't have to manifest what the world tells you to be. Listen, Satan's way to create, he can't create. The only way he can create is to get us to sin. Sin is the great undoing of the image of God. He wants to manipulate. He wants to transform in his way. But if we would trust in the Lord and behold in him and believe in him, it is that becoming that takes place naturally. The holiness of God works through our lives 
life? Because we've continued to lean into him. Because when we behold him, we are made like him. When we behold him, we are transformed. When we behold him, we don't parent the same way. When we behold him, we, don't, we no longer treat our spouses the same way. We are transformed by the power of that agent from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We are transformed by the power of the Spirit of God. He's calling his people to holiness. He's calling his people to righteousness. And it's not possible unless we've got the Spirit of God's power working in us and working through us. Some of us think holiness is a covering. Holiness is a cleansing. Some of us think holiness is some sort of covering that when we come to Jesus, he just covers over all of us and, and makes us look a little bit better. Listen, the Pharisees, they had the finest clothes. They had a look of holiness, but they had zero power inside of them. And what Jesus wants to do, he wants to do more than just make you look better. He wants to make you brand new. Pastor, what do we do when it comes to sin, though? The only way to deal with sin is, is to dethrone it by the way of repentance. And when we call out to the Lord, he doesn't deny us. He fills us with, he fills us with himself. Why? Because he's the bread. Could my first impressions, uh, would, would you prepare to serve communion today? I thought there was no better way to end this series than for us today. If we're going to preach about bread and talk about bread, is to actually take the bread together. That we would take this progression. Could we put that progression back up on the screen, Josh? Could we do that? That we would walk in a progression this morning. As we come to the table, and, and if you all would, just, be, just grab those trays and walk forward. And we ask that everybody, if, if you don't want to partake, that's up to you. You don't have to be a member of the church. You don't have to be a constant attender. We invite everybody to the table. And if you want to observe and watch this morning, people take communion, more power to you. There's no pressure here today. But if you just grab that and hold that close to you as we prepare to take communion. This morning, my prayer is this, is that as we come before the Lord's table, that we would start off with we, we simply behold who he is. And from beholding, that we would step into the place of believing. And from believing, that we would take that next step instead of ghost following Jesus, that we would begin to become and allow his work to transform us. Craig, before you go on, could you, Craig, Shane, sorry, Shane, could you bring me one? I called you Craig for two years when you first came, I just undid it all. Thank you, dude. One of the driest places on earth is a place called the Atacama Desert. I'll say it correctly. The Atacama Desert. It receives less than one millimeter of precipitation each year because of how dry it is. And there are some areas of this desert that has not seen rain for more than 500 years. This place is in Chile. In fact, this is where NASA sends the, rover, the Mars rover robotics to do their training because it's the closest place on Earth that they could simulate the planet Mars. 
And so what we see here is a shot of the desert itself. And if there's anything that I can look at this and see, is I can look at it and see, this is my life before Jesus. This is my life before him. Dry and barren, empty and broken. It was in 1984, 1984, when I first gave my heart to Jesus as a child. And I wandered away from Jesus years ago, years later. And it was in my 10th grade year, February of my 10th grade year, that I began to realize that I could play church and I can give an image of a flourishing life, but the reality was this was my life and what I needed was God to do something. But my problem is, is I saw my life as nothing more than a desert with zero potential at all. But what is cool about this picture is underneath the soil, this might rock your brain, there are over 200 species of flowers that sit dormant because it needs just one element and one element alone to come and to give it life. Do we know what that element is? You're listening to the sound of it right now. It's rain. And so what happens is this. Every now and then a storm will come and that storm will bring 10 years worth of rain in 10 hours. And when you bring in that type of concentration of rain, this is what happens. 10 years worth of rain hits and all of a sudden, 200 species of flowers and greenery come out of nowhere. They call this a super bloom there. Now go back to that previous picture. This is where we all started. This is where we are all at. This is where we began when we were dead in our sin. But someplace, some moment, we beheld Jesus. And when we beheld Jesus, we begin to see Jesus for who he was. He was more than just a good man. He was more than just a prophet. He was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God incarnate sent down to us. And as we beheld him, some of us, we, we turned to believing. And we believed. All of a sudden, our souls begin to get filled. Our souls begin to get nourished. Our souls begin to all of a sudden get so full that we begin to realize that everything else I feasted on in this world, it no longer, it no longer tantalized the mouth of the soul because Jesus is what filled us. But I love that Jesus doesn't just leave us full. He sends his spirit. And we get to the place where we no longer have beheld him and we believe, but now we get to become like him. And he sends the rain. And he sends life to cause a flourishing to come through us. So that we start off as deserts. Now our lives can bloom because of the presence and the power of God. What happened on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 is the rain began to fall. The thunder began to crack. And all of a sudden as people began to worship, they had part souls that said, we beheld Jesus. We believe in him. And on that day of days, the spirit of God came down. And all of a sudden lives began to flourish. Lives began to sprout out. And from that day, this world has never been the same again the super bloom that we see that's what we need to see in our lives our lives are never meant to sit dormant 
Our lives were never meant to sit dormant. Well, we're just, we're just beholding. Oh, but Pastor, but we believe. I believe that the holiness of God wants to work through our lives so that when the world sees us, what they will see is an unveiled face and behold the glory of God being transformed into the same image from one degree to, uh, to another for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Would you bow your heads with me? Would you bow your heads with me?